Welcome to Christ the King. This morning we are uh, plugging along in our sermon series, First Impressions. We just, the idea is to look at some of the initial reactions to Jesus, first impressions that others had of him, and uh, help some of those first impressions that are recorded in the gospel shape our uh, a lasting or enduring impression you know, of, that we have of him. You know, sometimes a first impression, just a, cast, a passing glance, can be very uh, formative. So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at how some people initially reacted to Jesus. Some reactions have been very positive. Some, uh, some initial reactions were he was a kind man or he was a wise teacher. Some reactions to Jesus were less than positive. He was a, a controversial figure. Uh, this first impression of Jesus, I don't think is a negative, but certainly it's not a positive. And so what we're going to do is uh, for this morning, we're going to look at this first impression, how people responded to Jesus and why. And we're actually going to, we're going to see that this first impression that they had of him is not accidental, that it's something that's a, a really a, a essential quality of Christian faith and an essential quality of the church. So this first impression that they had of him is, is really important to us. And while they didn't view it as a positive, I hope to end with a wrapping up our thoughts by suggesting that this initial first impression really is a very encouraging for you and me. I don't know if anyone was able to follow that outline, but hopefully as we move through, it'll be, uh, become a little bit more clear. So let's jump right in. How and why did people react to Jesus the way they did? Let's set the stage. Jesus is, uh, this is the sixth chapter of Mark. About a third of the way through his public ministry, Jesus has had some success. He's uh, been healing, teaching. He's gathered a little bit of a following. And now he comes back to his hometown. And their reaction to them, uh, him, their reaction to him, you can follow it. Get your, uh, please uh, get your passage out and you'll follow along together. You can see what the people of his hometown said. This is verse 2. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that's given to him? How are such mighty works done by him, by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Are not his sisters here with him? And they took offense at him. Now that word offense is more than just they were uh, disagreed with him. The word offense is from the Greek word skandalizomai, which means they were scandalized. It's not that they just didn't you know, you say potato, I say potato. They, they, were, they took offense at him, and not at just what, it's, what he said, but at who he was. he was. There was something offensive about him. Well, what was so offensive? You, you picked up on the clues, didn't you? He was just too normal. Right? So here's this guy doing all these things. That if God were to walk among us, there were things that God would do, like healing and you know, raising the dead, and that's something that Jesus did in the fifth chapter of Mark. And He's just so normal. You know what the definition of a professional is? It's someone who travels more than 50 miles and he has a briefcase. That's a professional. Jesus did not travel 50, he's, he's a hometown boy, right? They know, everyone knows his family. Apparently his father has uh, passed away, that's what the tradition suggests. But they know Mary, uh, they know his extended family. Just an ordinary guy. He's a carpenter. And we shouldn't think uh, sort of a carpenter down here, blue collar, they were white collar. You have to imagine in those days, everyone, uh, it was in some sort of manual labor or manual trade. So it's not that, I don't think that's the point. The point is, this is just a normal job. And what are the normal jobs in DC? You know, consultant, government contractor, lawyer, lobbyist. 
Uh, Jesus was one of those. Nothing particularly remarkable, right? He was ordinary. And that was offensive because they expected if God were to come, it would just have a little bit more style, a little bit more panache, right? We are uh, in an educational series in which we're considering our beliefs and comparing it to others. So uh, we had a rabbi in as we started. We had uh, someone from the Islamic faith uh, last week. And uh, we've, so the idea is compare and contrast. What do they believe? What do we believe? What are our similarities? There are some, what are our differences? There are many. And by considering the differences, we are able to more appreciate uh, some of the, the wonders of our faith. And uh, one of the things that is so remarkable is not the right word. It's just a gap that's too far for people of other faith traditions. It's something that we celebrate every Christmas almost without thinking. Jesus was born in the manger. God became flesh. Shepherds, Mary, Bethlehem. We, we, we've seen the movie. We've, we know the story. The, it's what the, the big word's called the incarnation. And we don't think about it too much, but that is the gap that is simply too far for people of other faith traditions or for other faith traditions. That God would become man, sorry. And this passage puts even a finer point on it. What kind of man did he become? Not a special man, just an ordinary man. Like if he was here around today, he would not be in advanced classes. Uh, he would not be in travel sports. He would be just a guy, ordinary. I don't know about travel sports, he may be, but you get my point, he was an ordinary person. <laughs> he had, the prophet Isaiah says there was nothing beautiful in him to compel us to him. He was ordinary, and that was scandalous. God, if you're gonna come and visit, like, if this is true, that this is God in the flesh, we want a little bit more pizzazz. All right, maybe a political hero, toss the nasty Romans out. Maybe a spiritual guru who can take us on uh, whatever spiritual gurus do. But, you know, not so ordinary. And they took offense at him. Why? Because he's ordinary. That's our first point. Second point is this. This thing that's so offensive to them is really an essential quality of the church. As a central quality of Christian faith. Let me give you a few examples of how ordinariness is not an accidental to Jesus' ministry. It's not accidental to the church or to Christian faith. It's absolutely essential. A couple of examples. Number one, the church is full of, I'm sorry to say this, the church is full of, you know what? Ordinary people. <gasps> yep, it's true. Uh, the Apostle Paul, when he first described the church, and uh, this is, he's writing to the first Corinthians. This is the first chapter of that book. He says, consider yourselves. Not many of you are wise. Not many of you are noble. Not many of you are from a uh, prestigious birth, you were just, you know, your second string. Sorry. <laughs> but God chose the weak things of the world to what? To overcome the strong. The church is full of people who are not special. Have you seen uh, the um, graduation, the commencement speech by David McCulloch Jr. given in about, oh, I don't know, 2002? Any nods of head? Nope, not a one. Well, the, uh, the, it's a commencement speech. I believe it's the David McCulloch Jr., so the son of that historian that's written so much. His, the title of his commencement speech was, You're Not Special. <laughs> 
So if you, you can find it on the web, it's probably worth looking at. It's a very counterintuitive, especially, you know, as a prestigious high school, all these kids branching out and launching. You're not special. Here's what he writes. Contrary to what your U9 trophies suggest, contrary to what your glowing report card from the seventh grade suggests, you're nothing special. You, students, have been pampered, pampered helmeted, bubble-wrapped. <laughs> you have been taught, tutored, coached, cajoled, counseled, and encouraged. You've been nudged and wheedled and implored. But don't get the idea for a second that you're anything special. Can't you just hear the gasps? <laughs> he continues, out of fear of our own insignificance, we have to our detriment come to love accolades. We've come to love being special more than genuine achievement. We've come to see being special as the point as if building a medical clinic in Guatemala is more about bolstering an application to an Ivy League than about the well-being of actual Guatemalans. <laughs> on and on. And I, don't, don't get the wrong impression. He's not saying that each person is not unique and each person is not in some way loved and cherished by the, those people around him. But the sense that we can get that you're special, everybody's a winner, it's just, that's, that's something that you have to put behind right? It's just not statistically true. Uh, this is not in my notes, so I'm going off script here, but uh, allow some parental indulgence. Uh, one of my daughters is a track runner. She's doing a very good job. My mom uh, sent me all of the clippings of when I was a track uh, uh, runner in high school. And so this was from, my, I graduated my junior year, and this was as I'm heading off into my senior year. And it says, Walkholtz, that's my coach, it says, a Walkholtz inherits gold mine. I mean, the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the boys' team is led by senior David Glade and sophomore Patrick Mucci. Uh, during track season, so this is during my junior year, Glade improved his time in the two mile from, should I boast? Yeah, just a little, little boasting. Improved his time from two mile in the, from 11.42 to 10.09. And the coach said, nobody improves a minute and a half in one season. Uh, who started coaching during my junior year. So that is, I mean, wow. I'm pretty special, aren't I? <laughs> well, so that's going into the junior year, right? So this is, uh, you know, be written right about now. You know what was written after my senior year? Goose egg. Nothing. Nada. You know why? Because I got about this good from my junior to senior year, and I stayed about this year for my senior year. And that's a respectable time. Uh, for a small town in Florida, but unfortunately, you know what it is? Ordinary. <laughs> Having gone off my notes, I'm not quite sure to get back on my notes. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the point is we all, the church is for ordinary people. And it is true, isn't it, that we have this pampered and controlled and everybody is a winner and everybody's special. And again, I don't mean to de-emphasize a uniqueness and everyone's love, but I think you can probably intuit that little bit of pampering I'm referring to. And I guess I'd say it even further. The one thing you have to be in order to be a Christian, to be a member of the church, is you know what you cannot be? You can't be special. 
No accolades are allowed for your membership into the church. We're going to sing a great hymn, uh, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, during our communion service. And in that hymn, we're going to sing, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Nothing in my hand I bring. Not my, not my, my medal that says everybody's a winner. Not my seventh grade report card that tells me how special I am. Nothing. Not my good works. Not my, not my family. Not my, my position in the church. Nothing in my hand do I bring. The only thing I bring to my salvation is the sin for which Jesus died. You see, to be a Christian is to be an ordinary human being, just an ordinary sinner with all the faults and the foibles that that entails. You know, the church is full of ordinary people, B-listers. Consider yourselves when you were called. Not many of you were noble. Not many of you were special. But God chose the weak things to overcome the strong. Secondly, one example of the ordinariness of the church. Second example is a little bit of church history. Members of the church, ordinary people. Leaders of the church, secondly, ordinary people. There was a little church history here. Uh, about the year 300 AD, there was a massive persecution. And many of the people, uh, church leaders, uh, recanted. The going got tough and the tough hit the road. Uh, they renounced their faith. They said uh, they, they distanced themselves from the church and from Jesus. And uh, the persecution came to an end. And these same people who had at one point said, like Peter said, we do not know the man, uh, re-entered, repented, and re-entered their ministry. Now, that doesn't seem right, does it? And there's one fellow, his name was Donatus, and Donatus said, you know, that can't be. Uh, you can't have clergy of such questionable moral fiber leading the church. Uh, they may, may not need to be perfect, but they can't what they did has invalidated their ministry. And it was actually St. Augustine, we've heard of him a little bit before, St. Augustine argued and said, no, that cannot be, that the moral fiber of the clergy does not invalidate their ministry. Why? That's not to excuse laxity, not to excuse their following, falling away, but if you make the moral caliber of the clergy the qualifying mark, you're going to have no clergy left because they're all ordinary people. Ordinary. Third and final, we've seen the membership of the church is ordinary, the leaders of the church are ordinary. Third and final, God works through the ordinary stuff of the church. God works, he nourishes in his church and feeds his church in three basic ways, all of which are stunningly ordinary. What I have in my hand here is called a Bible. And this is a book, and then this book is, has words on it, and the pages, and a lot of words, and then you could find a lot of books with a lot of words, and it's very ordinary, just a book. But God has chosen this very ordinary thing as the means by which he speaks to you. He guides you. He encourages you just a book. Around the table, we're going to gather and receive a 
piece of bread and wine. You can go to Trader Joe's and find better bread and better wine. It's all very ordinary. One of the ways God speaks to us today is through the, what we do here, through the gathering for worship, through the ministry of preaching. He uses, he uses people like me, Robbie. And you may think, God, couldn't you do a little bit better? Couldn't you do, a, can't we have a little bit more panache? A little bit more style? Like, how about a, how about a pilgrimage? How about, let's go back to that spiritual guru. Why such ordinary stuff? Why? Because God, for some reason, has chosen to work with the ordinary and through the ordinary. St. Augustine, the same St. Augustine who stood up against Donatus, said, I fear missing God. And he feared missing God for this very reason that God has chosen to work through the ordinary stuff of life. Can you imagine these poor Nazarenes? When they figured out who was in the presence and who they missed, how silly they must have felt. And I know I'm not the only one to have had moments in the day when I think, gosh, I think I may have missed something. Our quality, uh, characteristic that we should develop is openness. Openness to hearing from God, being nourished by God through what? Through the ordinary stuff. Through his word. Through the sacraments. Through what we do here. So ordinary is not just a mark of Christ, it is an essential mark of his church. Third and final, I want us to see that the ordinariness is really pretty good news for you and me. There must have been something good about being ordinary. You know, there's this passage uh, when Jesus uh, is at a wedding, and it says by his, at a, wedi- at a wedding service, we say by Jesus' presence at a miracle in Cana, he blessed and consecrated this manner of life. Jesus became an ordinary man. He blessed and consecrated a particular kind of life, and that is an ordinary kind of life. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that Jesus learned something when he became man. And there's something that you learn that you, from being born into an ordinary life, that you don't learn if you're born into a special life, a life of privilege. You know what you learn? You learn a much neglected virtue. I think it's a virtue you see in this passage. You learn the virtue of plotting. P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G. Plotting, not plotting. Plotting. I think you see evidence of this in the passage. You see, Jesus came to his hometown. Pretty unsuccessful journey. Unsuccessful visit. He's turned out. Uh, He's booed. His ministry is dampened. Now, does Jesus toss in the towel? Does he say, well, enough of that. You see the last line in our passage? What did he do? Went to the next town. He was resilient. Their dismissal of him didn't derail him. Ordinary people learn a virtue that special people never have to learn. Ordinary people learn to plod. They learn to take one step after the next. J.R. Tolkien in his fantasy book, The Lord of the Rings, put some unlikely heroes in the center. 
great tale, wizards and warriors and knights, but at the, his hero for this story were the unlikely characters of hobbits, who above all else were simply sort of domestic little creatures. And so as we're first introduced to hobbits, we're told that they were introduced this way. In a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit, not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with ends of worms and an oozy smell, nor yet a dry, bare, sandy hole with nothing in it to sit down or to eat, but it was a hobbit hole, and that meant comfort. They were simply domestic little, little creatures. Yet through their ordinary domestic lives, they developed a hidden strength. Now that is, they could plod. They could take one step and put it in front of the next. So as their adventure begins, someone says, the road must be trod, but it will be very hard. Neither strength nor wisdom will carry us forth upon it. This quest may be attempted by the weak with as much hope as the strong. Yet such is off the course of deeds that move the wheels of the world. Small hands do them because they must. Ordinary hands do them because they must. While the eyes of the great are elsewhere. And at their journey's end, uh, the hopes are seemingly lost. But one of the hobbits says to the other, well, the journey is finished, but having come all this way, I don't want to give up quite yet. It's not like me. So where do you learn that, that quality to just press on? I think you learn it by being ordinary. I think you learn how to press on by waking up every morning and making your bed and saying your prayers and going to work and taking all the lumps that work delivers, having good days and having bad days and getting up and doing it again. I may be out on a little bit of a theological limb, but I believe that Jesus was a plotter. He grew up in a normal home. He grew up with normal siblings. He grew up with chores. He grew up with daily disciplines. He grew up with a normal job, with all the frustrations and all the successes that that entails. In his ministry, he was resilient. He gets booted out of one town, and he simply picks up and goes to the next. He was a plotter. He was a plotter because he was an ordinary man. So, let's hear it for ordinary people. Let's remember that Jesus was an ordinary person and a savior of ordinary men and women. Let's remember the church, its membership, its leadership, and the way we're nurtured and nourished are all through scandalously ordinary things. Let's remember this first and encouraging impression. 
Now, Jesus was an ordinary man, the savior of ordinary men and women, who, by his incarnation, fills our ordinary lives with dignity. Please rise.